We've been in a sermon series uh, called A Growing Faith. And the premise of this series is that uh, you might have seen uh, one of the slides when you're walking in. It says uh, the mission of our church is to help people grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the way you do that is by growing in your faith with God, with Jesus. And we've been using this term faith not in some kind of mystical, crazy way that sometimes you hear bantered around by religious people and by church people. Uh, it's not a magic formula. It's not a way to get God to do things for you. It's not a, some kind of, if I had enough faith, then I would win the, win the lottery. Um, everybody, everybody think that? Anybody? Uh, the way we're thinking about faith and the way I believe the Old Testament and the New Testament talks about faith is that it's about relationship and it's about building a relationship with God. In fact, the reason that I believe this is true is because the way we exited our faith with God in Genesis 3 was through unbelief. The serpent came to Adam and to Eve and he said, did God really say? And he starts to insert doubt into their minds, into their lives. Perhaps you've experienced that. Perhaps you've experienced doubts in your relationship or lack of relationship with God. And that's okay. That makes sense. It's common to all people. In fact, Mother Teresa wrote about her great doubts about God that she experienced most of her life. So doubt in God and wrestling with doubts is kind of the flip side of the coin of faith. (laughs) You can't have faith unless you have doubts. You can't have faith or belief unless there's such a thing as unbelief. And so they go kind of hand in hand. And so we've been talking about those things that God uses in our lives. And, And Andy Stanley, it's his list that I've kind of been preaching through. It's a list of five things. And, and I think there could be more added to this list. Um, it's not from the Bible. It's just as you observe what happens in your life and in church world and in other people's lives, you see that these are common things that God uses. And so several weeks ago, we talked about practical teaching, that God uses practical teaching in our lives uh, to open up our eyes and help us grow in our faith. Uh, God uses providential relationships. He puts people into our lives who speak truth into our lives, who care about us, who love us, who have sometimes awkward conversations with us. And those people help us grow in our faith with God. We talked about private disciplines. And we talked about how God uses private discipline, those things that we do when nobody else is looking, getting up early in the morning, praying, when we give, when we read our Bible. Those are things that God uses to grow our faith. And today we're going to look at um, personal ministry. And personal ministry, uh, uh, just real quick, is, is when God calls us to do something, when God calls us to do something, and that's a pretty, you know, big, wide definition, isn't it? Because he could call us to do a lot of things. And it could be inside of these walls in the church. It could be outside of these walls in the community. It could be many different things. And I believe strongly that you and I are all shaped and gifted to do lots of different things. Things inside the church and things outside of the church for God's kingdom. To impact God's kingdom, to grow God's kingdom, and to grow our faith and grow the faith of others. And so one thing that I'm going to try to argue about and argue about, argue for, and try to demonstrate through this sermon is that God wants us to enter into personal ministry, not because it can benefit other people, though it does, 
but primarily because of what it can do for us in our faith. How it will shape us and it will mold us. Well, August 24th, 1759, on High Street in Hull, England, a baby boy was born. His parents, Robert and Elizabeth, named him William. And William was a sickly, delicate, uh, small kid. He had poor eyesight. And he was uh, 17 years old. The year was 1776 when he enrolled in St. John's College. And in St. John's College, he uh, was not particularly interested in studies. How many of you know what I'm talking about with enrolling in college? You or your kids, perhaps, huh? And his priority wasn't his studies. In fact, he was exceedingly wealthy because his father and his grandfather left them their fortunes upon their deaths. And so at 17 years old, he was financially independent. He was set for life and he was in college and he was a party animal. Though in 1776, that's not what you called them. He liked to gamble and play cards, which I guess were bad back then. Uh, now we have state lottos, so we've changed times a little, right? Uh, and he spent his evening hours drinking with his buddies. And then in 1785, or excuse me, 1784, he had a profound experience where he came to know Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior. He became an evangelical Christian, even though he had been raised in the Church of England all of his life, had been subjected to lots of sermons. You know what that feels like. He had spent much time in church every Sunday growing up. He had never come to know Christ. And it was through his aunt and his uncle and their uh, their mission, their, kind of their, their sharing the, the, the name of Christ with him and the gospel with him, that he came to faith in Jesus Christ. A little bit before that, that was 1784. In 1780, William, perhaps you know his last name, William Wilberforce, was elected to Parliament at the age of 21. And uh, also for the cost of 8,000 pounds. <laughs> Elections were a little different back then, or maybe not. He was in Parliament. He became a Christian. And... The slave trade became a pressing issue in his mind. The slave trade was this huge part of the British Empire's economy. In fact, it drove 80% of the British economy. And Wilberforce was convinced it was immoral and wrong. And so he started to wage war in 1789 against the slave trade. But you got to see that this was just a great thing that the British had going for them. Because they would go to Africa with their goods and they would sell them and they would buy slaves and they would transport the slaves to the West Indies and they would sell the slaves and they would buy sugar and tobacco that were raised by the slaves and they would take those back to England and they had this golden triangle and if any part of that were to be broken, then 80% of Britain's economy would collapse. So there's a lot of powerful people, a lot of businessmen, a lot of folks who have stood a lot to lose if slavery were to be abolished. In 1789, Wilberforce 
was able to uh, get to vote 12 different amendments or 12 different uh, pieces of legislation to outlaw the, the slave trade, and none of them passed. Most were filibustered. And then he tried again in 1791 and failed, in 1792 and failed, in 1793 and failed, 1797 and failed, 1798 and failed, 1799 and failed. He continued to try to fight, continued to try to win the abolition of slavery. Well, you know the story. Through Wilberforce and and other courageous men, the slave trade was eventually outlawed. And it was brought to an end. And in fact, the British freed their slaves long before the U.S. did. Due to Wilberforce and his efforts. And as I read the story and think about the story of William Wilberforce, it strikes me because this man many times, even while his parliament days, he would find himself bedridden from his illnesses. He would not be able to go to work. He would be on bed rest for weeks on end. And it strikes me that this man who was sickly and had poor eyesight and who was small in stature. In fact, one of the one of the members of parliament saw this, what he called a shrimp of a man, get up to address parliament. And his oratory skills, his eloquence was so amazing that he saw this shrimp of a man grow into a whale. As he addressed parliament. And this man, Wilberforce, took his gifts, his natural charm, his likability, and his speaking ability, his eloquence. And he took those two small things and used those in ministry of God and his kingdom. Think of the the forces against him, aligned against him, ever being successful. And yet today, we all think, well, the abolition of slavery, that was a foregone conclusion. That was just going to happen. But one historian has said that Wilberforce was at the crux of probably one of the world's greatest moments ever. Because the world became a radically different place. For the first time in human history, an empire had outlawed slavery. He believed that he was called by God. He had many discussions with John Newton. And John Newton was the man who penned Amazing Grace. We sang this morning. And John Newton encouraged him to continue to fight the good fight. And they believed that God had placed him in parliament so that he could continue to wage war against slavery. And one thing's for sure. Failing so many times grew Wilberforce faith. Trying again and again and again and over and over and over grew his faith. The question for you and I today, is God nudging you to do something? Is God nudging you? Is he, he got his elbow in your ribs Yeah, husbands, like when your wife does that. Does he have his elbow in your ribs? Is he nudging you to do anything? Personal ministry. 
You see, what God does and how he uses personal ministry is, is to grow our faith. Don't you think that Wilberforce had to have amazing private disciplines? An amazing faith in God to just keep going, just keep trying year after year after year after year. Sickness after sickness, he just had to trust God. Well, I don't know if God's going to call any of us to something as amazing as trying to abolish slavery, something as big as that in our world. But I do know this. God calls all of us into personal ministry. Every single one of us. And let me also say that the vast majority of us resist it. Now, why? Why would we resist? Well, let me speak from my own life. One reason I resist is because I'm scared. And the other reason I resist is because I'm scared. You see, the main reason I'm scared is because I think, well, I probably don't know enough. I'm probably not good enough. I'm probably not wise enough. I probably haven't read my Bible enough. I probably can't help them. I probably have nothing to offer them. I should just keep my mouth shut. I should just go home. Do my own thing because I know how to operate the remote control on my television. I'm confident in my abilities. And I probably shouldn't try to do what I feel God is nudging me to do because God, I probably will fail because I just, I know me. And as we keep this question in front of us. Is God nudging you to do something? Is God nudging you into ministry in some way? And when I use the word ministry, don't think, oh gosh, preaching and all that kind of, I mean, just doing something to advance God's kingdom. Examples would be, is he nudging you to take a leadership role in our church? Is he nudging you to work with kids in our community, with teenagers in our church? Is he nudging you to work with widows in our community is he nudging you to help with the younger generation? Because many people, they, instead of helping, they point these things out to people like me. And they say, you know, one thing that we should do is we should really get something like this going for the kids. I'll pray about it, but you make it happen. And I often counter that by saying, maybe God told you so that you'd do something. And many times people go, but I'm going to, I'm a prayer warrior. That's what I do. I just pray and I'm just going to pray about it. God, would you please send somebody to help them? God, would you please send somebody to do this? God, would you please send somebody? And maybe God is answering your prayer by saying, it's you I'm sending. And then we start sounding like Moses, the burning bush. Well, God, I can't talk hardly and I, uh, nobody likes me and I'm horrible, no bad, very good person and I don't know what to do and I can't figure myself out and I don't, they'll never like me and it won't work well and God, find somebody else because we're scared because we think we can't do it. But there's this amazing story in the pages of the scriptures where Jesus shows us what this looks like. And he shows us how to respond when he comes nudging. It's in Matthew 14, in verse 13 is where we'll pick it up. And it's an amazing, powerful story. If you've been around church world at all, you'll know how this ends, okay? Because you've heard this a thousand times. If if you kind of know some Christians, you've probably heard of this story. If you have no idea what this story is, after this you will. 
When Jesus heard what had happened, now I got to tell you what had happened, right? Because that's like, well, that's not a very good place to start. Jesus has just heard that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been killed. Jesus' cousin, John, whom he loved, who he spent much much of his life growing up with, uh, who he knew very well. Jesus just heard that his his cousin, John, had been killed. He had been beheaded and he was killed by Herod. And the reason he was killed by Herod is because John kept using Herod, Herod's immoral marriage to his sister. Yes, you heard me right. To his sister as a sermon illustration. He kept saying, that's wrong. You shouldn't marry your sister. And so Herod and his wife, the queen, got sick of hearing about this. And so they imprisoned John and they eventually beheaded him. And as you think about that, you've got to think Jesus started to think, huh, That could be me someday. Jesus, hearing this, it says that he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. He needed to go somewhere to to weep, to mourn, to grieve his cousin's death. Anybody been there? You see, Jesus knows everything that we've ever experienced. And he himself has experienced the loss of a loved one, their death. He needed time away. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the town. So they couldn't get a boat. Not all of them would fit. So they walk all the way around the edge to go to meet Jesus on the other side of the lake. When Jesus landed, now now just think about this. How would you take to this scenario if it's you? Trying to get away. And they find you. You've felt this before. Moms, you've felt this before, right? With your kids. Dad, you've felt this before with your wives. No, I'm just kidding. I'm out in the shop doing nothing. Where, why, what are you here for? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And healed their sick. Don't you love how he just throws in and healed their sick? <laughs> I want to see one miracle, right? And Matthew just kind of, and healed their sick. <laughs> you know, it's like, how did that work? You know, was it like lightning bolt power out of his hands? Or was it like, hey, if you're sick, raise your hand. Okay, cool. Everybody's healed. I mean, or was it a big long line? How did this work? I have no idea, but I, I wonder. You know, it's probably on a, on a TiVo up in heaven that we can watch eventually. <laughs> So anyways, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Now, a couple of things might be going on here. One here might be that the disciples are starting to get it and they're starting to be, instead of looking at their navel, they're starting to look at other people and go, oh, we should care about these people and help them get some food. The other possibility is they're hungry. And they're thinking, Jesus, wrap it up. It's time to go eat. I don't know which is, you know, there's 12 of them. There's probably six of them that were like, Jesus, wrap it up. It's time to go eat. And the other six are like, oh, look at the poor people. Let's help them out. Now, whichever was the motivation, look what Jesus says. This is why me saying, maybe you need to go help them is biblical. Because look what Jesus says. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. You. (laughs) Could you imagine their response? 
Well, we don't have to. We can read it. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Here? Jesus says, bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples. <laughs> now, let's stop right there before we get to the next part. Because just imagine this. Jesus grabs these loaves of bread and these fish. He holds them up in the air. He prays. He thanks God for them. And then he starts to break them and hand them back. And you're a disciple and you think, okay, I just handed you more than you just handed me back. What am I supposed to do with this? Because... Did he give directions? Hello? Did he give directions? He said, you give them something to eat, right? But he hasn't told them, okay, now turn and give it to the people. I mean, I know some of you. I know, I know me. And I like to be told sometimes what to do in a situation like this. He just handed me back food. Is this for me? What do I do here? And then they turn and start to give it to the people, right? Then look at this. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Jesus outdid himself once again. The number of those who ate was about 5,000. Besides women and children. <laughs> you can see just how ridiculous Jesus' comment back to them was, right? You give them something to eat. Uh, okay, there's like 12 of us, Jesus, and this isn't even a meal for the 12 of us. You, you, what? Excuse me. Did I hear? You want me to give them something? To, okay, everybody, just start grazing. The grass is fine. I mean, what do you do? What on earth do you do? And what I love in this story is that they gave to Jesus what they had. And he used that. And then they turned and did what they knew to do. They gave it away. You see, if you are tuning this out and you aren't going to pay attention anymore because you're like, I'm hungry and you bring up bread and fish. Stay with me and hear this one part. Because this is the entire thrust of this message. When God nudges you, do what you can do and trust God to do what only God can do. I mean, when God nudges you, when he just, you give them something to eat. Do what you can do. Okay, here's some fish and bread. <laughs> and then see if God will do what only God can do. Multiply it. Give it back to you to hand back to others. You see, what's going on is that Jesus knows he's about to leave. And he is trying to start the church. He's try, trying to start a mission, a movement in this world. And he knows that he's got 12 knuckleheads that he's got to get through to them. And their faith has to grow in him. And they have to believe. They have to believe that they can accomplish greater things than feeding 5,000 people. 
And so he's got to lead by example and he's got to show them, trust me, have faith in me. If I nudge you, do what you know to do and let me take care of what only I can do. Now, the story goes on immediately, which means very quickly, right? And this is an important word in the Gospel of Matthew because it links these two stories together. These are connected stories. He wants you to read this together. He doesn't want you to, like my Bible here, the NIV has broken these apart. And for you to go off and drink your coffee and go on with your day. No, he wants you to read these together. And it says, immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Made them get into the boat. And go on ahead of him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowd. Could you imagine trying to dismiss that crowd? Well, you just healed all of our sick people and you gave us free food. Uh, Why would we go somewhere else, man? This is a good gig. (laughs) Right? That would be a hard dismissal. No, really, go in peace. Get out of here. Leave me alone, right? And so Jesus dismisses the crowd. You got to see the funny stuff in in the Bible. You really got to read this thing. And so while he dismissed the crowd, after he had dismissed them, so because he's God, he's able to accomplish that, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Again, private disciplines. The Son of God got away privately to pray by himself. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. (laughs) Now, if you doubt that the Bible is true, just a really quick, this one's free. If you're going to make stories up about yourself and your buddies, aren't you going to make yourself look good? I mean, when you tell a fish story, I mean, you don't come up and, yeah, I caught this one. It's this big. It's amazing. I spent my whole day, you know. When you tell a hunting story, yeah, the buck I got was like, you know, I mean, no, it's like huge and it's amazing and you had to scale the highest mountain in the world to get that fish or kill that buck. I mean, we make up stories that make us sound better than we are. And this is by some believed to have been made up. I mean, if you make this up, you make yourself sound better. You don't say we were terrified. We were scared to death. We're a bunch of wimps. In fact, Matthew, who wrote this book, there are, there are very few paintings of this incident that have ever been done. There's only one that I know of. And you'd think that this would just be full of tons of artists who would have rendered this painting of Jesus walking on the water. But most believe that it hasn't been painted because it makes Peter look bad. It makes the disciples look bad. But the author wasn't upset about that. Anyways, that was free. Okay, now listen. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I (laughs) in his best Shakespearean. Don't be afraid. Now, Peter, listen to what's going on with Peter. I think this is related to the story that we just heard because Peter is starting to put things together. 
Lord, if it's you, Peter called, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, here's what people sometimes don't understand about faith and about Christianity. Some people think that it's just a blind leap of faith. Some people think that there's no proof for it. There's no evidence for it. So it's just a bunch of people going, I don't know. I've checked my brain at the door, but I'm jumping in. But that's not what Peter's doing. Peter doesn't go, hey, look at that. I'm going to jump out into the water and see what it is. Peter says, invite me, Lord. Nudge me, Jesus. You see, it's not just blind faith. It's not just diving out there and going, ah, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to trust Jesus. It's not what this is. He asked God to invite him. He asked Jesus to invite him. Jesus says, come. And then Peter does what he knows how to do. Peter doesn't know how to walk on water, but he does know how to do what he does next. Then Peter got down out of the boat. That's what he did. He's a fisherman. He's been doing that since he was yay high. Peter knows how to get down out of a boat. Peter's, Jesus says, come. Peter says, okay, I know how to get down out of a boat. Never done it this way before. I mean, I have. I've gone swimming. <laughs> Peter gets down out of the boat and then walked on the water and came towards Jesus. That's the new part for Peter. Peter does what he can do and knows to do. Jump out of the boat. And he trusts Jesus to do the part that only Jesus can do. <laughs> Keep me on the water. Let me walk on it. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and, be, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little, what's the word there? Faith. You see, it's about faith. And it's not about having magical faith so you can go around walking on water. It's about faith, belief in Jesus. That Jesus will do what only Jesus can do if you will do what you know to do. When he invites you. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed back into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying... Truly, you are the son of God. I mean, we had our suspicions earlier, but <laughs> now we know. I mean, you just feed 5,000 men. Now we really know. You think these stories go together because both times Jesus invites them. You give them something to eat. You come and walk. Both times Jesus nudges them. And both times they respond by saying, well, I know what to do is we eat these kind of things. So here you go. And then when you give it back to me, I guess I'm supposed to hand it to them. You see, if you're afraid to step out and do what you feel God nudging you to do, it's because you don't have faith. And I don't mean magical powers kind of faith. I mean, you don't really trust Jesus. You don't trust him that he's going to catch you, that he's going to be there, that he's going to meet you and strengthen you and give you the abilities to do what he is calling you to do. Before I got here, I was a youth pastor. I spoke to teenagers and I played with teenagers and I 
learned about their lives. And next thing I know, God is nudging me saying, hey, why don't you go and be a pastor of a church in a small town? Huh? It's not what I had thought was going to happen, Jesus. You sure about this? I think, hello, is this on? Is this, is this broken? And I showed up here pastoring two churches, which is something I had never done in my life ever before. And you know that if you were here, right? Preaching once a week. That was new territory. Never done that before. Some of you are thinking, well, hopefully you'll quit. And I continued to try to learn. I remember the first funeral I did. And the first family, because teenagers rarely die. And I had not done a funeral before. And I remember sitting with this family and I'm going, (sighs) inside. I don't know how to, what? Okay, I know how to talk in front of a group of people. I can offer that. I, I can show up on time <laughs> and talk. And I can, I can keep my mouth shut when I don't have something worth saying and I can open it when I think I do. And, and, and then I, I started to find my way and 80 plus funerals and 10 years later, I think I do an okay job with them. I try, but each one is a new experience where it's like, okay, God, all I can do is offer what I got. That's all I got. And Jesus, you need to make up for the difference. You you need to meet me here. You need to meet this family here. You need to walk in this with us because I believe I've been called to do this, but I can't do this. It's overwhelming. I don't have the abilities. I don't have as much knowledge as I need. I don't understand how these things work. I'm scared to death most of the time. And then God does really funny things like brings more people to our church than any of us probably ever expected. (laughs) We're like, huh? What do we do? And it's like God starts inviting us and nudging us and saying, you're going to create a place for them? You're going to create opportunities for them? You're going to keep ministering and loving people? Or are you just going to close the door, us four no more? And it's like, ah, God, I don't know what to do. I'm confused and I'm scared and I've never done this before. You're hearing me, right? Because this is some of what you say, right? When Jesus nudges you, Never done this before. This could be a really bad idea, God. (laughs) We could crash and burn like nobody's business. And God says, you're going to trust? You're going to move forward? Or are you going to cower from fear? You're not going to do it. Now, I don't know what the future holds. I have no clue. I wish I did. I don't know what the next move is. I don't know what, but I keep trying to trust God's nudges and I keep trying to do what I know how to do. (laughs) And I trust that God's going to do what only God can do. And he's going to have to do it again (laughs) because he's done it before. And I'm pretty sure I have faith that he's going to do it again, but I don't know how, and I don't know when. Aren't you glad that people 
who had God's nudge in the past listened and did what they knew how to do? I mean, we're sitting in a building that a previous generation built for us because they felt God's nudge. And they thought, boy, this is crazy. Small town, where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to get the funds? This is dumb of us to do. And yet they felt God's nudge and they did the next thing they knew how to do. And next thing you know, God is meeting them and building this church and helping them get the funds and put it together and make it happen. And then several years later, they go, we need more space. And they feel God's nudge and they raise money and they build the fellowship hall. Because before that, they had to walk all the way downstairs for their brownies. Because that's where the kitchen was. Aren't you glad that people took God's initiative, his nudge, and they said, all right, I don't know, I'm not sure, maybe this is crazy, but let's do what we know how to do. You know, the elders, when we sit around and we're going, what are we supposed to do? I keep trying to say, we just need to do what we know how to do. Because God put us here and we're the only ones here and we don't. And, and by the way, maybe God is nudging somebody here today and saying, you need to step up into leadership. And you're like, oh, but I, I read those elder lists and there's no way I could do that. And there's no way I could live up to what an elder is. And by the way, join the club. That's how all the elders in this church feel. But we step in and we try to do the, what we know we can do and have God do what only God can do. Maybe God's tugging at your heart to, to get you out of this church and to get you someplace else doing ministry elsewhere. And you're like, oh, but I don't want to leave this church and I don't want to do these things that God's calling you to do. But maybe he's calling you to do and to step out and to do something that you know he's nudging you to do. And you just got to step forward and do it. And do what you know how to do. Sometimes when people, my mom says, hey, drive safe. Moms do that a lot, right? Drive safe. Drive safe. If you get tired, pull over. You know, if you get hungry, eat something. You know, they help you out with all those kind of things. And I, my response to my mom is, I'll do my best and let God take care of the rest. The first time I said that, it was kind of flippant, you know, like, I'll do my best. And like, but the more I've realized what I was saying, the more I've realized, wow, I was exegeting this passage here. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll give you my, my bread and my fish. Here's my best. It's what I got. And I'll let Jesus do the rest. You see, if you're being nudged and you're scared or worried or, or concerned, God's trying to grow your faith. That's why he's nudging you. That's why he's trying to push you out the boat, push you out the nest, push you along so that your faith will grow because it's a muscle and it only grows when it's exercised, when it's used, when it's pushed to the limit. And sometimes, as we'll see next week, if you don't listen on this one, sometimes you use pivotal circumstances where he just kicks you out the nest because you weren't willing to go. That's a whole nother sermon. It's next week's. Is God nudging you? What are you going to do about that nudge? 
Because I firmly believe if you will do what you can do, God will do what only God can do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you take folks like us, scared, sinful, messed up, confused, anxious people, and you continue for some reason to use us. You nudge us. And thank you do that to build our faith. And I thank you for the many people here today who have been faithful when they've been nudged, who have brought somebody to church when you've nudged them, who have just done the next thing that they can do by inviting somebody, by encouraging somebody, by writing a note, by just being there, by calling, by offering counsel, encouragement, by starting things in our community that benefit and bless our community. Thank you for these folks. And I pray that you continue to grow their faith and call them to awesome things. And for those, Father, who might be hearing this stuff for the first time, would you just continue to nudge them? Nudge them closer to faith in Christ. They know what they need to do. And we trust, Jesus, that you will do what only you can do. Father, we pray that today and always... We would feel your nudge, listen to your voice, and do what you ask. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May he invite you to the adventure of a lifetime. May you get out of the boat and trust him. Amen.